probably no greater critical illness state than cardiac arrest. The need for defibrillation is real. There has to be something different that I can do. An impressive change in survival to hospital discharge. The outcomes are frankly eye-popping. Are we changing practice? Welcome back, everyone, to Critical Care Perspectives in Emergency Medicine. This is Mike Winters from the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. So happy that you are joining us yet for another exciting, exciting podcast about a hot off the press article that may be changing the way we approach select patients in cardiac arrest. So can't wait to have this discussion with my amazing co-stars, colleagues, co-hosts here on CCPEM. Let me bring them in. Dr. John Greenwood, Dr. Rob Rodriguez, and Dr. Peter W. Gentlemen, it's hard to believe, but we have entered into the final month here of 2022. Can't believe we are at the end of another year. We're at the holiday season. We hope that all of you are enjoying some holiday time over the course of the month of December. But let me check in before we get started on this educational topic. John, how are you doing this podcast? Doing great, Mike. It's one of my favorite times of the year, as I'm sure you as well and everyone on here. But I'm really excited to talk about this article, getting back to some good cardiac arrest. So just to uh, give a little at the topic for today. We are excited as well. Probably no greater critical illness state than cardiac arrest. Well, having said that, Peter, how are you doing? Doing great. Enjoying cooler temperatures and climbs in New Orleans and enjoying that weather change as well as the season. So it's phenomenal time here in New Orleans. Yep. Great, great time of year. Dr. Rodriguez, out west, how does this podcast recording find you? It finds me in great spirits. Just had a wonderful trip to the East Coast for Thanksgiving with my kids. And paradoxically, it was it felt like it was warmer on the East Coast than it is here in San Francisco. Certainly at, at night, it felt warmer than it gets here. Yeah. Had a great trip. It's just that time of year when the temperature fluctuates so much, got sometimes above the norm. And then more recently, I, I know this morning I was scraping frost off the car, driving into the hospital here. There you go. I must have just missed that. Just missed it. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm glad to hear that you all are doing great. And I guess let's get to the topic at hand, why people are listening. And that is, once again, another hot off the press article. John, you sent us this in email. We were having a good discussion on it and felt, you know what? We really need to get this out in podcast. So I'm going to turn things over to you. Have you take us through our podcast this month. Yeah, so this was just published in the beginning of November, New England Journal of Emergency Medicine by a really interesting research group in Canada. This was by Dr. Sheldon Cheskies, and I apologize if I mispronounced your name, but a number of other fairly well-known cardiac arrest researchers, pre-hospital care, who published a study that was met with a lot of discussion, because I think it's a topic that all of us have heard about. And we've all probably read about a little bit, whether or not this is through research papers, blogs, or even through our own clinical practice changes or variation within emergency medicine. And the paper was published entitled Defibrillation Strategies for Refractory Ventricular Fibrillation. 
And so when I first read the title, I thought it was a review article, but then I was excited to see that it was a actual clinical trial. So as I said, it was published November 6, 2022, if you want to look it up for yourself in the New England Journal. But maybe we can sort of talk about cardiac arrest and just do a quick summary in general of what we know about it. So Peter, why don't you start us off with a little bit of background? You got it, John. And so out-of-hospital cardiac arrest accounts for more than 350,000 deaths in North America each year. So this is a prevalent disease that impacts all of us. 100,000 of those are attributed to either ventricular fibrillation or pulseless VTAC. So the need for defibrillation is real. Approximately 50% of these patients have refractory VFib despite multiple attempts. And medical treatments, whether they be amiodarone or lidocaine, have not been found to improve survival and have not been found to improve our neurological outcomes. So we really haven't made great headway lately. Double sequential external defibrillation, right? So two sets of defibrillation, as well as vector change defibrillation, so putting one on top and one posteriorly, anterior-posteriorly, are two strategies that have been studied in the electrophysiology lab and suggested as an alternative to continue anterior lateral defibrillation mm -hmm. attempts. So when we talk about double sequential, one's anterior lateral, our standard, another is going to be anterior posterior. So that's our double compared to vector change, which is anterior posterior on its own. Traditionally, these alternative defibrillation attempts have been performed and reported really as case reports and from smaller studies and lower quality levels of evidence. Since early application of double sequential fibrillation may increase the rate of ROSC, right? Return of spontaneous circulation. The timing of this alternative treatment is really an important clinical question. So the objective for this study is to compare double sequential defibrillation and vector change defibrillation. They're comparing those two techniques to our standard defibrillation in patients with refractory ventricular fibrillation during out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Yeah, it's an outstanding summary, Peter. And I think all of us are kind of can remember back to patients that we've had where we're doing ACLS and we're going through kind of the usual treatment path and we get a rhythm check and it's a VFib, right? And we do our defibrillation, do CPR for a little bit longer, recheck again and still in VFib. And it's always in the back of my mind, there has to be something different that I can do, not just the same thing over and over again, right? Like nothing's more frustrating than feeling like you have no other therapeutic interventions in your back pocket to try. And so this was a great sort of practical question, I think, that these authors decided to study. But as we all know, the devil's in the details. So Rob, maybe you can walk us through kind of the methods of this trial and what was actually done. Yeah, John, this was a three-group cluster randomized controlled trial with crossover in six paramedic services in Canada, which included approximately 4,000 paramedics. And it was conducted from March 2018 to May of 2022 in a mix of urban and rural communities in Canada. And notably, pre-hospital care for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest is standard 
by all paramedics in Canada. And also notably, they had a brief enrollment pause for five months in 2020 due to COVID. They had to kind of reevaluate their methods for ACLS safety. And then the trial was stopped early in May 2022 by the Data Safety Monitoring Board because of paramedic staffing shortages that made response times longer and affected timely application of the assigned group of defibrillation. And so they included adult patients, 18 years or older, who had out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, refractory V-fib defined as an initial V-fib rhythm or pulseless VT that was present after three intervals of defibrillation with two minutes of CPR. So again, that's important inclusion criteria. Again, it was refractory V-fib defined as an initial V-fib rhythm or pulseless VT that was present after three intervals of defibrillation with two minutes of CPR. Sort of your kind of early V-fib adult type patient. They excluded non-cardiac causes of V-fib, traumatic arrest, patients who had DNR directives, and potential hypoxic causes such as hanging, drug overdose, and hypothermia. The randomization scheme where they used treatment sequences that were computer generated by the data coordinating center and assigned to the various paramedic services. And they had paramedic service clusters crossed over. They crossed over every six months to a different treatment group. Now, the interventions, of course, they had standard ACLS to all patients. And then the interventions were the first three defibrillations, they had the pads placed in the standard anterior lateral position. If they were still in VFEB, VFEB or pulseless VT after that, patients then received either anterior, uh, the same anterior lateral defibrillation or vector change defibrillation in which the pads are placed anterior posterior, or they had double sequential defibrillation with anterior lateral plus anterior posterior pads with two separate defibrillators. So again, the three different arms of the study, standard anterior lateral, vector change defibrillation with anterior posterior pads, and the third arm was double sequential defibrillation, which was a combination of the other two. Their primary outcome was survival to hospital discharge, and their secondary outcomes included termination of V-fib, return of spontaneous circulation, and good neurologic outcome, which was defined as a modified Rankin score of less than two at hospital discharge, which is basically implying a mostly normal mental status and function. They conducted a priori power analysis, and this is important. They estimated a 30-day survival of 12.4% with the having greater than three shocks and an estimated increase in survival to hospital discharge with the intervention groups of 8% or greater increase in survival in the two intervention groups over standard therapy. So based on these estimates, the authors required 310 patients in each group, in each of the three arms, or 930 patients total for adequate power. 
Perfect summary, Rob. So basically my takeaways from this were they're really looking for adults with likely a cardiac cause of their V-fib arrest and were randomized to one of three arms. I'll be interested at the end, I'd like to get your guys' opinion on the choice of primary outcome here, because this is always a pet peeve of mine for any of these critical care interventions is what should we actually be looking for, for the benefit of a change in defibrillation B, especially in these refractory VF patients. But we'll hold that for just a a little while longer because the results are really interesting. And Mike, maybe you could walk us through the results of this trial, and then we can kind of get to our final thoughts. Thanks, John. And well, let's find out what these investigators found. Are we changing practice? So in total, a little over 400 patients were enrolled in the study. So 405 was the total. As Rob just mentioned, the trial was stopped early due to issues related to COVID along with staffing. Of those 405 patients, roughly a third went into each group. So standard group had about 34% of patients, vector change about 36%, and the double sequential defibrillation group had about 31%, so roughly a third. Importantly, about a little over 12% of patients did not receive the assigned defibrillation treatment, and that was mainly due to protocol violations that occurred in the standard group for refractory VFib. Well, who were the 405 patients enrolled in this study? Roughly age in the mid-60s, nearly all, so about 84% were male. Large amount, 70% were bystander witness with about 60% getting bystander CPR. And the time to first defibrillation ended up being similar, about 10 minutes between the three groups. So the primary outcome, that survival to hospital discharge. And importantly, the results were listed as adjusted relative risk ratio. So just a minor point here with that, if the result is greater than one and that confidence interval doesn't include one, well, that means then the results are considered significantly more likely in the treatment groups. And in this particular study, that's the vector change along with the double sequential defibrillation group. So having said that, survival to hospital discharge in the standard group, a little over 13%. In the vector change group, almost 22%, so 21.7. And in the double sequential group, 30.4%. So impressive change in survival to hospital discharge with either vector change and the double sequential defibrillation groups. What about secondary outcomes? So recall that one of those was termination of VFib. Well, in the standard group, just about 68% had termination of VFib compared to in the vector change, 80% and Double sequential, 84% termination of VF. ROSC was also higher. Standard group was about 26.5%. Vector change was about 35%. And then the double sequential was about 46%. And well, John, arguably what I think we should always be focusing on in terms of these studies, what was the outcome, the good neurologic outcome? Well, that occurred in just about 11% of those randomized to the standard group anterior lateral pad position, about 16% in the vector change, so moving it from anterior lateral to anterior posterior, and then double sequential, 27.4%. So definitely looking at these results in this randomized trial, it's favoring double sequential defibrillation for those that have refractory VF. So let me turn things back to you now for a little bit of banter back and forth. (laughs) Yeah. So I think this is interesting, right? At the end of the day, you kind of feel for these 
researchers, clinicians, whoever. This had to take place during the pandemic. And, you know, I think we're all very familiar with the staffing shortages. And, oh, that's what actually stopped this trial short, really. They enrolled about half of the goal subjects. But some interesting things, right? Certainly, there is a consistency in the findings of their outcomes, right? Each predefined group seemed to be leaning towards the intervention arms, particularly the double sequential dilation, as being a potentially better solution for refractory VF. But certainly there are some limitations, right? So Peter, let's start with you. Is there anything, at least on your initial thoughts, or maybe some limitations that might make you a little bit hesitant to say this is a practice-changing article for you? Yeah, I think we have to weigh it between what their outcomes were right? And then the limitations, because the outcomes are frankly eye-popping, right? But when we look at the limitations, particularly the fact that it was stopped early, and then they only enrolled 44% of their target participants, that's a big game changer for me. That's either we did really faulty power analysis to start with, or we're looking at our data as we were cooking it, saw a difference and said, let's publish. So I find that to be a strong limitation. I'd love to hear what you guys have to say about that. How about you, Rob? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I agree with Peter on that. That is a pretty notable limitation. In other words, I'm assuming that the investigators are intellectually honest, but they stopped it extremely early. And I would like to see what the discussion among the DSMB board about it, because this is such a strong overall study design and everything that it would be great if they had continued a little further. Having said that, these are pretty eye-popping statistics. My biggest limitation is that we are already kind of do AP. AP is our standard, not anterolateral. So my notable comparison would be between the AP group and the double defibrillation group. I'd like to see some numbers comparing those two groups. I don't know what your practice is at your shops, but again, we already do AP uh, defibrillation. How about you, Mike? What do you think? So interesting, interesting results. And full disclosure, when we have patients that come in with refractory V-fib, we do have the conversation, even ahead of this particular study, should we try double sequential? Should we try an esmolol bolus? Those are the two therapies that I think we frequently talk about in this setting. And I have certainly tried double sequential in the past with mixed results, sometimes conversion to a perfusing rhythm versus unsuccessful. This adds more data to the conversation, you know, an additional 400 patients with impressive results. Now, with respect to the APA anterolateral in Baltimore City, we have a lot of our patients come in on mechanical CPR devices. So technically, it makes it a little bit more challenging to get that AP pad placement and often won't do the AL just because of the technicality of trying to pause, rotate, and there's an art to that. So while we've done AP, more often it's still AL in terms of pad placement. When we look at the vector change, something that we've talked about in the vector change group, something we've talked about in previous podcasts or alluded to is that whole concept of a fragility index. And at least in this group, they just had a fragility index of one. So if, if the change in outcomes, as we've talked about, one patient, well, in that arm, it wouldn't have made it significant. 
But the double sequential, there's other limitations of this study, but you know, quite honestly, it adds some more to the conversation. It's more of a randomized fashion versus in the past. And I will continue to consider this therapy in the treatment of these patients coming in. Will I lean a little bit more towards double sequential over the beta blocker therapy such as esmolol? Perhaps, and we'll continue to see where that goes. But I do think that despite its limitations, it's informative and adds to the discussion. Yeah. I think that while the good neurologic outcome, as with a lot of the critical care trials we're seeing in 2022, everyone wants to see survival, mortality, I personally am more interested in the termination of VF and the return of spontaneous circulation outcomes because that's the link, right? Cardiac arrest to ROSC is determined by the intervention, which is defibrillation. And so although I don't know if it was powered to show a difference between those two outcomes, but that actually would be an interesting question for me because what I'm seeing is about a 20% increase. So one out of five or so have a little bit of a difference in outcome of termination of EF or ROSC. That is interesting. And it would be interesting to have been a fly on the wall with the data safety monitoring board, right? Because if you show them this data and say, well, this is what we're seeing so far in terms of outcomes, it could be a benefit to the community if we continued this, despite having paramedic shortage and everything else, that might have encouraged them to move forward. I don't know if that was discussed, but as Peter and Rob said, that is a little bit of a shame or maybe a missed opportunity there. You know, so I don't know. I agree. My general practices for refractory VFib is not to do the same thing, is to try something different. And what that is usually includes a modified defibrillation strategy. But I have to say, I think it does make me think to lean more towards double sequential as opposed to vector change and the anterior posterior placement. We too use mechanical CPR. And so oftentimes if I can get a second pad, now granted you need a second device, but you can usually have someone run to go get one. I usually have that in my pace plan. My primary alternative contingency escape prior to ECMO is usually an alternative defibrillation pattern. So I think that certainly was an interesting trial. And I hope, I hope that someone picks this up and decides to give it a go again. One last thing too, I don't know if you guys noticed, but I would say that the patients in terms of the results looked a lot more similar to U.S., Cardiac arrest patients, 58% with bystander CPR, 68% witness arrest. For once, we got a cardiac arrest study where it wasn't 90% bystander CPR witness arrest like they have up in the Netherlands or in Europe. Seemed a little bit more real to me. So I appreciated that for what it's worth. So yeah, overall, I think they did a great job. Would love to see more and agree with you guys in terms of what I'd like to see to come. All right. Well, thanks, John, for leading us through another outstanding discussion. Before we wrap things up, any final comments, Peter or Rob? Just one other thing from the limitation standpoint. It'd be very interesting to see post-resuscitation, was it standardized across the group, right? Did everybody receive targeted temperature management, PCI? What did that look like across all groups? Just to, to shake that out just a little bit so that we would know whether all the groups were equitable. Good point there. Yeah, I, I think a meta-analysis is about to arise soon of these alternative pathways for defibrillation, and it'll be interesting to see the numbers in a meta-analysis of that. The other thing that I would just bring up is the BMI. 
and see who's responding. Is it more likely with an elevated BMI that you respond to double sequential defibrillation? Because my bet is probably so, right? Mm -hmm. That's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, gentlemen, as always, I find our discussion so informative, so fun, and so insightful on hot off the press literature. Can't get any more hot off the press. John, once again, thanks for sending us and this article and really teeing up the discussion here. And really, thanks to all of you for listening to CCPEM here for yet another year as we wind down 2022. We'll get one more podcast in before the end of the year, but we are always so thankful, so appreciative that you take a listen to us and then email us with the questions, follow-up concerns you have. We really enjoy the offline communication with all of you as well. So we'll bring this podcast to a close. We're about right perfect on time. We will very much look forward to talking to you on our last podcast for 2022. Bye for now.